Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Urien Timmer, as he discusses the latest market moves, potential Fed rate cuts, and possible supply chain issues. U.S. equity markets opened up at all-time highs this week, so could these highs and rallies continue? And how much of an impact do these gains have on the Fed's interest rate moves? Urian points out that although the S&P cap-weighted index did make a new all-time high, the Russell 2000 small-cap index is in a bear market. It's down 20% from its high. This is the first time in history we've seen this. He explains that small caps being behind is not unusual. It's not unusual for large caps to go first, then small caps to follow. But he points out the spread has never been this wide, and that is a testament to the magnificent seven leadership in the market. But Urian says if history is any guide, these stocks will follow at some point. Urian also touches on the Fed and says back in December when the Fed gave a hint that we would get three rate cuts in 2024, the market just ran with it. Now the market is walking back a bit, and that's also one of the reasons why small caps are under pressure. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on January 22nd, 2024. Glad to have you with us on your birthday. Thank you. Um, so let's dig into the rally itself. Um, your, take us through how this rally can happen when actually, when you look at the small caps, when you look at Russell, for instance, the Russell um, 3000, it's, it is so, so, so far off its all-time highs. Take us through what we're seeing here. What is rallying? Yeah, um, and it just goes to show that there are always nuances, right? I mean, we like to think in market terms, okay, you know, S&P made a new all-time high, that means this or that means that, but there's always other stuff lurking. But why don't we just kind of unpack this for a moment. Let's go to slide five. And um, so <clears throat> last week, the S&P cap-weighted index did make a new all-time high after spending 106 weeks wow. below it. Uh, that is a long time for the market not to be trending. Uh, because as you know, the market goes up, you know, historically, if you're patient long enough, it goes up by around 10, 11% per year, and it rises about two thirds of the time. And so, um, so for it to not be doing that for two years uh, is, is a long time. So in this chart I show in that kind of yellow line is the drawdown. So we, as we all know, in the S&P and here in the US, we had a 28% a drawdown that ended in October 13th of 2022. Um, and last week we closed that gap. Um, and so the question now is, you know, what does it mean? So if we go to uh, slide three, <clears throat> uh, this was my, 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 my weekend project was to unpack, okay, you know, when, how many times have we had a, a bear market or a meaningful correction, meaning 10, 20% lasting, you know, quite a long time. Um, and after that, the market made a new all-time high. And a way of thinking of that is this, the market is just reasserting the prevailing uptrend, which, which again, two-thirds of the time is up. And so in this table might be a little hard, hard to see, but the conclusion is that when the S&P makes a new high after some sort of correction, it tends to go up, uh, which you know makes perfect sense because it, it's, it's a way of reasserting upward momentum. And so in the following year, it goes up about 14%, 89% of the time, 
compared to a typical forward 12-month return of about 8.5%. That's price return, not total return, and 73% of the time. So, so the, the, the prognosis is, is positive that when you make a new high, it, there's kind of a reassertion of upward momentum, um, and that generally means that the market does pretty well. So, so this bodes well for 2024, especially considering the very weak start we had. I mean, remember uh, this indicator called the January barometer, and of course January is not close yet, but the first week or so <clears throat> certainly ended up on, on a sour note. But you asked about small caps, <clears throat> and that's a very important caveat. Um, and actually, let's go to slide seven, which is not small caps, but it's the S&P equal weight. And what we see here is that the S&P equal weight, as well as the Russell 2000, are not making new all-time highs. And not only that, uh, for the first time in history, uh, the S&P cap-weighted index is making a new all-time high, while the Russell 2000 small cap index is in a bear market. It's down 21% from its high. Uh, we, no, go ahead, sorry. Just how unusual is that? Because that, that uh, seems... So, so small caps lagging behind uh, is not that unusual. Uh, for instance, there were, there were breakouts to new highs even as recently as 2020 after COVID, but also in 1998 after long-term capital, even in 1991 after the savings and loan crisis. There have been times where it can take a number of months, you know, 10, 12 months for small caps to confirm what the S&P is doing. And so that is not super unusual and, and it kind of makes sense because small caps are more economically sensitive and, you know, they, they have weaker balance sheets generally. And so the, the big the big dogs, you know, um, the, the, the leaders in the S&P, the big companies, obviously drive the index because it's a cap-weighted index. So it's not unusual for the large caps to go first and then for the small caps to follow behind. Sure. Um, and, but, but the spread has never been this wide. And, and that's just a testament to you know, the magnificent seven leadership of, of this market. So uh, I think the S&P equal-weighted index you know, is around 5% below its highs. Uh, if history is any guide, these stocks will follow at some point. Um, and, and you can already see in this chart, <clears throat> those pink bars is a percentage of industry groups of the 24 industry groups in the S&P, um, you know, with upward momentum. And you can see that off of those October lows last year, uh, this has been a broad-based rally. It's just that these Magnificent Seven are so powerful that they are propelling the cap-weighted index higher while the rest of the market is moving higher, but it's just, you know, it's taking them longer. So I, I do think it, this will have a, a positive uh, resolution, but the, the contrast between small down 21% and large making new highs is pretty, pretty stark. Yeah, it really is. Look at that. I mean, just just that, that spread is unbelievable. We haven't had a chance, last week was a holiday in the US, we haven't had a chance to ask you a bit about, looks like really the, the walk back last week Maybe even if we'd spoken to you on Monday, we wouldn't have been able to talk about this. But the, the Fed walked back a little bit on the cuts, the pivot of December. Um, the market took it and ran with it. The Fed out with various players trying to walk that back a little bit. Take us through what, what you're seeing there and also the reaction in yields. Yes. Yeah, so let's go to slide 10. Um, so, yes, uh, that was a very good summary. So in December, the FOMC meeting, 
the Fed uh, kind of surprised the markets by uh, hinting, I mean, not outwardly declaring, but hinting that we would, that the, the tightening cycle is over and that we would get three rate cuts in 2024. And, and why three? Because when you look at the dot plot, which are those purple dots, and you look at what the Fed publishes every quarter, which is the summary of economic projections, they put in there what their base case is to where you know inflation will be, growth will be, where the Fed rate will be, and that rate is 75 basis points lower at the end of 2024 than at 2023. So the Fed pretty clearly uh, hinted that uh, rate cuts are coming, and um, and that makes actually perfect sense. We, you and I, have been talking about this for some time. But the markets being the markets, they're like a spoiled child. You know, the market gets three rate cuts, but they want six or seven. And so, of course, we had this situation where the market just, you know, took this and, and ran with it. And this is why we had this massive rally into the year end, uh, not only for equities, but for bonds as well. And you can see that, that since then, in the last few weeks, uh, the market has walked back um, some of these expected rate cuts also because the Fed is is sort of pushing back on this narrative. And I think the Fed, again, is, has done nothing wrong. They didn't go over their skis, but three rate cuts is not the same as six. So, so the market is now walking this back. That's also one of the reasons why small caps are under some pressure here. Uh, but if we look, go to the next slide, uh, slide 11. Um, so, sorry, my... My my parents are trying to FaceTime me for my birthday. Oh, so, uh, I'll just, just birthday! They want to talk I'll call them back in a moment. <laughs> um, but if you look at this chart, which is the the Fed funds target rate, the forward curve in the black dotted line, and then the purple line is the core PCE rate, which is the the inflation measure that the Fed favors. Um, it makes perfect sense for the Fed to give back some of the rate hikes. I mean, you see that. Core PCE peaked at 5.6, it's down to about 3.2. There is no reason for the Fed to stay at 5 and 3 eighths when the inflation threat is abating. Now, inflation's not gone away. 3% is not the Fed's target, that's 2%. Uh, inflation may very well stay sticky here at around 3, like 3 is the new 2, is what I like to say. Uh, but again, if, if you think about what is a neutral rate, uh, it's R star uh, plus in plus some sort of steady state inflation rate. So R star is one percent. If inflation is three, um, then neutral, a nominal neutral rate is four. The Fed is at five and three eighths. So the Fed is you know quite restrictive uh, relative to neutral. And if inflation is coming down, the Fed should come down with it because if the Fed doesn't come down with it, the spread between neutral and the Fed actually goes up as inflation comes down. And so, the, so, so, so it's, it's a very much a moving target and the Fed should move with, with this target. But, but then you get many people saying that they should move with it, but they need to move with a little bit of a lag because to make sure that it is in fact crushed. Um, so where is that subtlety? Yes, and so if we go, if we go back to that chart, uh, you'll, you'll notice a symmetry there uh, where the black line is basically just the purple line, but two years forward, right? So in, in that sense, you, this chart, if you lined up those two lines, no pun intended, uh, you yeah. would see that they are basically identical. So the Fed is literally just 
responding to what's happening to inflation. And of course, the Fed always does that, which is why in history you get these sometimes these policy errors because the Fed is chasing a lagging indicator with very much forward-looking policy. So you can just imagine how that can create you know, policy errors. And I think the Fed's very aware of it, and that's why they're trying to move quickly here. Um, but so the question is, you know, that, that dotted line, it now goes to 3.4. A week ago, it was at 3.1. The question is, what is the right number and how quick? And my, my argument would be that if we have a soft landing, and so far the evidence points to that, um, then the Fed should be about maybe a percentage point or something above neutral, right? Ne like the, when in a recession, the Fed goes below neutral. In a, in a in in the scenario that we are in now, the Fed is above neutral. Uh, so it's it's a moving target. So the question is, where should the Fed be? My guess is it should be at four, not at three, because there should be some positive spread over the over the neutral over the inflation rate in a normal kind of growth scenario. So. This is where I think the three quarters uh, of a point rate cuts come from. So five and three eighths to four and a half would still leave the Fed with a positive spread over inflation, but less so than it is now. And so I think that's where we're going. And I think the market just got over its skis. It got way too uh, way, way too excited, and <clears throat> and now we're pushing some of that back. And you see this actually also in the bond market. If we go to the next slide. Um, <clears throat> I have my my bond model here, <clears throat> which is based on uh, the long-term run rate in GDP, as well as the forward curve. And the forward curve is, is very much a, a, a you know a, a snapshot in time. Sorry, what were you saying? It's, it's a very cool chart. That one. Oh, like thank that. you. Um, and and so you know th th this is always a snapshot because the forward curve is changing every second of every day, but it creates a band that I think explains. <clears throat> Where yields are and where they should be, and so based on that, on 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 those uh, variables, a fair value is around four to four and a half. <clears throat> I think you know at five, it was above fair value. Then when it rallied to three seventy eight, that didn't make a lot of sense. So we're, the bond market is also adjusting, as it always is, and so <clears throat> four and a quarter. Four and a half, I think, is a reasonable number. So the, the good news is that the market is walking back from this overly, um, you know, overly bullish scenario, um, and uh, and that's and you know, I, I think that's a good thing. That's fascinating. Um, I wanted to to ask you actually about earnings and, and estimates and, and get into some of the more story, but I wonder if we can just hold on that for a minute because we're in the midst of the discussion of the Fed and, and the reaction within the bond market. You've, you've mentioned before, and we've heard about this, sort of the similarities to the 1970s. Um, and this has to do with when the Fed gets out, when it thinks it has or hasn't, in fact, killed inflation. It's, it's all of the timing that's going on right now, different, different decade, different generation. But uh, what are the similarities between the 70s and now? <clears throat> yes, um, uh, I find this actually really fascinating. So we go to slide 14. So I've studied market cycles, you know, uh, for a long time, um, and I like to think about the leads and lags of, you know, what makes markets go down and up, and the juxtaposition of valuation. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, valuation and earnings, and so here we see in this chart the drawdown that we had, you know, in October of 2022, 28%, and <clears throat> compared to 
all the other bear markets and serious corrections that we've had. And one, one that has stood out was the 1973 to 74 bear market. Um, <clears throat> now, in many ways, <clears throat> that was a totally different time of history. Of course, we had double digit inflation. Of course, we came close to that in 2021. Um, but there were all kinds of other issues going on. Valuations were, were much, much lower. The decline was much greater, was 48%. Uh, but if you can already tell, that thick gray line and that orange line, they kind of moved in similar ways at similar times, even though the magnitude was different. And the um, the tightening in financial conditions, which is in the bottom panel, were nearly identical. And so what's unique about the 74 bear market is that it did not follow the usual roadmap of a bear market. Typically what happens is, you know, Fed over tightens, uh, you get a recession, earnings fall, therefore stock prices fall, the valuation goes down, and then at some point the market sniffs out a recovery, price starts to recover, and then eventually, you know, the Fed is cutting rates and that creates then the fuel for the next, for the next recovery. Uh, and that's typically the, you know, the sequence. I mean, the financial crisis was like that, COVID was like that. Um, but 74 was different because the market declined. Uh, a lot, uh, even though earnings were growing, um, but the Fed was tightening. Um, and as a result, the PE went way down, right? Because that by definition happens if price goes goes down, earnings go up, uh, the, the PE goes down. Um, and then eventually the Fed stopped raising rates. <clears throat> and then the market kind of, you know, it was like a spring that 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 was coiled and then the market recovered. But we did get a recession, um, and the Fed then started, you know, easing. Uh, but the market actually didn't go down at this point because it had already gone down before. So if we take this a step further and we go to the next slide, <clears throat> again, the magnitude is totally different. But if you look at the S&P 500, um, it is following a very similar track. And if we go to the next slide, 16, uh, and I'm taking some creative license here. Uh, some some might accuse me of, of committing uh, chart crimes, but if we take the PE ratio and we put them on different scales, because obviously back then we went from a PE of 16 to a PE of seven, and this time we went from a PE of around 30 to uh, 16. So different orders of magnitudes, different numbers. But if you line them up, the the the, the chart is identical. Uh, and then if you look at the bottom, which might be a little difficult to decipher, but if you look at the earnings growth cycle, and I'm using the five-year earnings, normalized earnings here, those are the smooth curves that you see at the bottom. And I look at the, 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 the change in the PE, um, those are all on the same scale and they look very, very similar. And so the, the point here is that the market went down while earnings were growing. That happened in 2022, earnings grew 8%. Um, and then the market went up when earnings were shrinking. <clears throat> and you know, in 2023, the market went up and earnings fell 3%, which is pretty modest. Um, but it's, it's a cycle kind of that's a little bit backwards <clears throat> because <clears throat> it normally doesn't quite go that way. So the, 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 the punchline for, for describing all of this is that if history were to repeat, uh, the 1970s, uh, we could actually get a recession in 2024 um, and a broadening bull market at the same time, which is wow. not, not something that many people have on their bingo card. 
for 2024. And it's just it's just a testament to kind of how screwed up this whole cycle has been. Pardon my my pardon my French, but you know the the pandemic really kind of threw a wrench into how we normally think about cycles. And that outcome, getting that actual recession that we were all waiting for a year ago, but the market actually rallies and broadens in the face of that uh, because it already declined, you know, a year ago. Um, uh, would be the ultimate irony um, and and a, a good reason to, to basically to stay invested even if if even if that recession happens. That is fascinating. Okay, well let's bring to to everything that you just said the idea of where earnings go here and the estimate story because you know you laid out sort of a typical cycle and where earnings slide and at what point um, they start to look back up again. Um, we're, here we are in Q4 earnings. The consumer seems okay actually after the holiday season. What what do we need to watch for on the estimates front? Yeah, so uh, so let's get slide 17 up. Uh, so earnings season, of course, is now underway. This is for the fourth quarter of 2023. Uh, and once this quarter has been reported, we will know the final calendar year number, but the calendar year number looks like it's minus 3.1 or so. And the fourth quarter <clears throat> season is now underway. Um, as of Friday, 52 out of the 500 companies reported they beat by your typical 85 percent uh sorry 85 percent of companies beat their estimates by uh, around eight percentage points so so far it is fairly typical and as you can see in this chart which shows the progression of earnings estimates going into whatever the earnings season um, is and there's about you know i don't know 10 20 years worth of seasons in here what you normally see is that the numbers start too high so these are growth rates they come down as companies guide lower you know companies like to under promise and over deliver which they generally do um, and then uh, when earnings season begins uh, the numbers come in and then companies generally beat so what we've seen over the past four quarters is numbers start low they end up higher um, and you can see sequentially also that these different lines, the pink versus the orange versus the purple, they're all moving up. So we can say with some confidence that earnings have inflected uh, because the starting point for this season is plus one. We're already at plus 1.7, likely going up to plus four or five if the historical drift is, is any guide. Uh, and the last quarter started at minus one and the one before was minus six and the one before was minus three. So sequentially, you can see the numbers getting worse and then getting better. And, and so that's that's a good story for the prospect of positive earnings growth in 2024. Um, and if we go to the next slide, you can see that just expressed in a different way. Here I'm just showing the year over year change in expected earnings. And you can see you know pretty clearly an inflection there in 2023, uh, the gray line is the U.S., uh, the purple line is the non-U.S. developed, and the orange line is emerging markets. And, and you know, there is some interesting stuff going on uh, under the surface between the U.S., developed non-U.S., and emerging, and we can certainly get into that if, if you'd like. So, 
I'd love to. I'm just a couple of questions coming in here, rolling in here. First of all, from all 1,300 of us, plus, 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 happy birthday. They, it, we're exploding in the chat on happy birthday and best wishes to you, Yuri. And so I wanted to pass all of those heartily along to you. A um, couple of questions here. So one is taking a look at the implications of the Red Sea situation. This is the trade story, the global story. Um, what do we need to look for? Probably you can tie it back to earnings. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's tragic, not only what we've seen in the Ukraine and then Israel and Hamas and now, uh, the Suez. And of course, that one is related to the, to the second one. Uh, they're probably all related, um, because there's a lot of proxy, proxy things going on, uh, you know, between Russia and Iran and, you know, against, uh, a lot of the Western countries. So, but the bottom line is that the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, which is unrelated in terms of geopolitics, but the Panama Canal is having serious issue because the water table is too low. So they don't often have enough water for the ships to get through the Panama Canal. So these two major uh, canals are not operating at all or certainly below capacity. <clears throat> and a big chunk of shipping goes through those, the, through those canals. And so you just think about the implications of that, and it kind of brings you back to the, the COVID days of supply chain bottlenecks, right? If you're a cargo ship and you need to go around uh, the, 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 the Cape of, you know, the, of Africa because you can't get through the canal, guess what? That adds 20 days to your journey, you know? And so all of a sudden you get supply chain bottlenecks. And in a way, it's sort of an echo effect of what we had during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, they are presumably temporary, although the water table in Panama, that's not in anyone's control. I don't know what they're going to do about that. Uh, but so it, it, it will likely lead to some goods inflation. Um, and the market probably looks through that because, again, they're presumably not permanent. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it may it may affect the inflation recovery narrative, at least at the at the headline levels, maybe not so much at the core levels. But, yeah. Fascinating to get your views on that sort of economically, how it how it comes into it. So a couple of things that, that go to the timing element of, of uh, topics that you broached. So it has to do with sort of the market cycle, but ultimately, is there room in the Magnificent Seven to, to run from here is one question. And then also tied to the timing of what you talked about, is this an opportunistic time to invest in small caps? I, I, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> it's very hard to predict when the rotation, if and when the rotation <clears throat> out of the MAG7 to the rest of the market happens. Uh, but my sense is, and, and again, we can put um, slide, actually slide six up. My sense is that when you look at maybe not so much small caps, <clears throat> but equal weighted S&P, um, you look at the overall trend. The overall trend is up. The market goes up more than it goes down. We've been in a two-year holding pattern. Uh, the, the cap weighted index has now broken out to a new high, obviously driven by the Magnificent Seven. Uh, if history is any guide, the rest of the market will follow. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to outperform the MAC7, right? So there's a relative versus absolute performance question there. Um, but the, the, the mega cap growers have been running the show now for nine years. That's a very long time. Um, and I do think as the Fed does pivot, and it won't pivot as much as the market was hoping, but it will pivot, I think, 
banks and industrials and other companies that are smaller, maybe more interest rate sensitive, will be able to breathe uh, again. Uh, so it's sort of like this weight was on them and is being lifted. And so when I look at this chart of the equal weight index, uh, I see a stair-step pattern and I see impulsive rallies followed by long frustrating consolidations. And certainly this last couple of years looks like one of those. And so the bullish broadening theme um, is one that that I have that you know that I've been espousing, uh, meaning the market will go up and it will broaden. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean smaller caps will outperform larger caps. But I think there's a very good reason to have both in a portfolio. But, um, and, I would, and I would include non-U.S. equities in there as well, especially non-U.S. developed equities like Japan and Europe. In Europe. We're going to talk more about this this week. I, I wish we had more time to get your thoughts on that because I know I know you have um, in a recent report. Quickly on Bitcoin, if you don't mind, have you been impressed by all of the ETFs that are now available in the in the U.S. The uptick. What, just a quick thought. Yeah. Uh, so the the ETFs launched last week, <clears throat> and uh, I'm very proud to say that um, I probably shouldn't be able to say this, but that Fidelity, uh, it, it's it's already a horse race between Fidelity and BlackRock. And um, and I think that's really great to see because I've been you know not exactly on the front line of this, but I've been intimately involved with you know uh, our process here. Uh, I, I'm I'm writing a white paper that will get released uh, probably very very soon, and okay. so it, it's really nice to see that you know we are really in a neck and neck race against you know supposedly the the, the king of ETFs, uh, and it shows you that it is a winner take all market because. You need that liquidity and that volume to execute those Bitcoin orders at at a very close price to the spot, and um, and and you need to have you know that you need to have the skill to do that. So um, you know, per, somewhat predictably, uh, Bitcoin's price is now churning just because uh, a lot of these a lot of these positions were put on ahead of time, kind of as a proxy through the futures markets, through the Bitcoin-sensitive equities, um, like Coinbase, for instance. And now that Bitcoin has launched as a spot ETF, uh, money is moving from those markets you know, to Bitcoin. So it, it, there is a sell the news element to this, but it doesn't, in my view, derail the long-term uh, uh, you know, promise of what Bitcoin can do. Okay. Well, you accept all of the meals and drinks and whatever festivities come your way for your birthday. A very happy birthday to you and thanks for joining us here in Timmer. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice.
It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.